Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you grew up in a household that prized reading, you probably have a book from your childhood that helped shape your view of the world. Today's guest argues that books for young readers need to include more truths, even difficult truths. She's Candace Fleming, this week on Story in the Public Square. Welcome to a story in the public square where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Ludis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. Joining me as he does in the co-host chair every week is my great friend, G. Wayne Miller of the Providence Journal. Each week we talk about big issues with great guests, storytellers, journalists, novelists, and more to make sense of the big stories shaping the United States today. This week we're joined by Candace Fleming, an accomplished children's book author whose latest book is The Rise and Fall of Charles Lindbergh. Candy, thank you so much for being with us. So you have a, a tremendous uh, 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 catalog of books that you've published, um, but this was not sort of a, 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 a you know a, a immediate success right out of the gate. You 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 worked for a long time to achieve this kind of success. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, years of writing, um, not quite knowing what I wanted to share with kids. I mean, you always have to have a reason that you want to write for children, especially teenage children. Um, and while I didn't want to have a message, there were things that I wanted to share. And I think that's where you find the success is where you finally figure out what it is that you really want to share with your readers. Can you pinpoint a moment where you're like, oh, this is it? You know, I can. I have this master's degree in American history. And for a long time, I was writing um, picture books, um, sort of fun little romps, wonderful books. But I was really writing from my young sons. And um, all of a sudden, I realized that I wanted to write history for kids. I wanted to um, share history the way that I saw it. Um, and so that's when I made that choice. I thought, well, I'll try it once. We'll see how it goes. And amazingly, it went really well. Um, the book was well received and people asked for more and it's become uh, really an important part of the work that I do. So uh, let's go back even further, much further in time. Uh, you write on your website, on your biography, that you've always been a storyteller. And that goes back, you said, to a preschooler when you began to tell stories that, as it turned out, weren't uh, necessarily true. Talk about that because I, I found that just a oh, wonderful gosh. insight. Um, I was. I had discovered early on, and I mean really early on, like we said, a preschooler, that if I told people stories and I told them with a lot of details and I told them with some enthusiasm that even adults would believe the most outrageous things. And um, I really loved that. It was powerful. Um, and so I would go and I would tell people stories um, 
I told kindergarten, my friends in kindergarten, um, about my three-legged cat. We lived in Indiana at the time, but kindergartners are a little more gullible than adults. Um, and I told them all kinds of stories about my three-legged cat Spot and my adventures, and they believed them. Um, and then they would want to come and meet my amazing three-legged cat who had gone on these adventures with in these woods behind my house. But I was a storyteller, not particularly um, at this point, a nonfiction storyteller. And so they would come to my house and I would have to explain how one, I had no woods behind my house. <laughs> Two, I had no three-legged cat even. And four, I had no cat. So, um, <laughs> and I did try to tell them that the cat was invisible, but even they didn't believe that. Right. Um, so I did this all the time. And what was interesting was I had teachers and parents both that didn't say Candy's a big fibber. Instead, they said, oh, she's a storyteller and it would encourage me to write the stories down. I had amazing teachers that would actually let me share my stories with the class. Um, even some teachers that would even say, what are you working on now? Meaning they knew that I was writing something at home, which meant that they were treating me like a real life writer made a real difference i i find this background in really intriguing in in light of what your career later became which was actually telling truths and, and yeah, truths that not stories. true stories and truths that not necessarily had been discovered or were widely known and we're going to get into that in just a minute with with uh, a, a few of your great books but the question I have now is, why did you decide to write for children and young adults? I mean, obviously you have the talent to write to any audience, but you specifically chose that age group or those two age groups. Well, I think first, I think young writers or young readers, um, they're, they're an unbelievably generous um, audience. Um, they're also, I think one of the harder audiences because you have to grasp their attention. They don't have, they're not going to take any time to stick with you while you tell them a bunch of stuff that you don't tell them in an interesting way. So in many ways, they're the perfect audience for me because they require me to use all of my storytelling um, chops, so to speak, to hold them, to engage them. Um, but I also just really love them. I think it's um, a place they need the truth, I think, now more than anything. I think now they need stories, too, um, fictional stories. Um, it's a place that I felt I could do the most good, I think, with my work. Candy, I wonder, you, uh, how do you pick a topic? So the, the, your new book is about uh, the rise and fall of Charles Lindbergh. Uh, why Lindbergh? Why that story? Why now? I always pick the topics, especially if I'm writing YA, especially if I'm writing um, nonfiction. I said this the other day to somebody, I said I hadn't quite realized that I was writing all my own obsessions from my own adolescent days, right? All those things I was fascinated with. So the Romanovs, I was fascinated with Anastasia. Um, so I wrote a book about the, the Romanov family. Um, Charles Lindbergh, I was fascinated with the um, kidnapping. Here's what always happens for me, though. I go and do the research, and then I discover that there's a story that I didn't even know about, of course, when I was 14, right, that I've discovered now as an older reader. Um, and perfect example, Charles Lindbergh, I went in to do research on the 
the kidnapping and I discovered that Charles Lindbergh has an overwhelming personality that I just couldn't figure out. And so as I went down that rabbit hole, right, to figure out who he is, who is this man? Why does everybody let him lead this investigation? But he's just a pilot, right? Um, when I went down that rabbit hole, what I discovered was that he is an absolutely fascinating, complex, not particularly likable man that I ended up basically becoming obsessed with. And that's how I end up writing those, those, those books. You know, I, I just want to follow up on that. So there's a, there's a classic James Stewart film about Lindbergh's transatlantic flight, which sort of, I think in a lot of American popular culture, particularly folks who weren't alive when Lindbergh was, was actually making the flight, this sort of cemented his iconic status and glossed over a whole lot of other stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I'm curious, sir, your your take on the link between the popular storytelling that we get in a feature film like that and sort of the reality of the person. Oh, so this is what I think all of my nonfiction, all my biographies try to do anyway. I think we have in American history, we have put a lot of particularly people up on pedestals and then we ignore um, all the other things that they were, all the other people, all the other parts of their lives. Um, and we focus on this one amazing thing that this particular person did. And um, particularly in the case of Lindbergh, that thing that he did flying across the Atlantic Ocean was an astonishing achievement. I, I don't think we even understand the sort of achievement that it was. I mean, it, was, it must have been similar to when we landed on the moon, but maybe even greater than that, um, because Americans had this real sense that they had gone with him. Um, and so this is a guy that becomes this huge hero, right? He is an international hero. Um, I think it's a tendency. We don't want to hear the things about our heroes we put on the pedestal. We don't want to hear all those, but I call them in history, those gray areas. It's not necessarily the um, information that we don't know, the truths that, you know, the, the things that we don't know, but it's the truths that we don't know what to do with. Right. What do we do with that? That Lindbergh was this amazing American hero. He's still sort of in that pantheon of American heroes. And yet he was um, more than a Nazi sympathizer. He was a eugenicist to the day he died. Um, he had multiple families. Um, what do you do with that part of the story? And for a long time, we haven't told those stories, and particularly not to young people, um, which I think is unfair and dishonest. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard three times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University, in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Lutus. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 17 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Candace Fleming, an award-winning author of books for children and young adults, including the recently published the Rise and Fall of Charles Lindbergh. You can find her on Twitter, too, at Candace Fleming. That's C-A-N-D-A-C-E-M-F-L-E-M-I-N-G.
So I can speak firsthand to the power of Lindbergh at that time. My father was 13 years old when he crossed the Atlantic, and it had such a profound impact on him personally and career-wise. He, he went into aviation as an airplane mechanic, which was his profession for the rest of his life. Or once he became old enough, he served in the Navy uh, down at Pensacola. So that was the power at that time. But I never had this conversation with my father about these other aspects. And my guess is they weren't known. This is leading to a question, actually, which is you talked about going down the rabbit hole. <laughs> and, and 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 discovering some of the you know the anti-Semitism, the Nazi sympathizing. What is that rabbit hole? Talk to us a little bit about how you do your research because obviously you spend a lot of time doing it. What years. Yeah, I spend years. And here's the thing. Um when I refer to it as the rabbit hole, I always think I start out a book and I always think this is the book I'm going to write. It's going to be pretty simple. It's going to be about uh, Charles Lindbergh and um, the kidnapping. Right. And then I find um, some information that doesn't quite fit in with what I thought I was writing. And then I follow that. And invariably what happens, it really is like a rabbit hole. Um, I get in there and and I try to be as open minded and let the information come and I follow paths that I never expect to follow. And it is, it's just like following a path like this. And what eventually happens is the more research I do, the more I understand that the book I'm writing. Um, and eventually, I always call it my vital idea. Eventually I know what it is with this piece of history I really wanna say to kids. And as soon as I know that, then I know the research to follow. But I've already done two years of research now to figure out what exactly it is that I have to say with this particular book. Does that make sense? Um, no, absolutely. Yeah. It absolutely yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Once once I know the story, then I go, ah, this is the story I want to say. This is what I want to tell kids about Charles Lindbergh. Um, this is the um, thing that I want to explore with you in this book. Is Charles Lindbergh a hero? You know, what is a hero? Is he still a hero? Why do we listen to heroes? Why do we give heroes um, huge? Why do we give celebrities big platforms to talk about topics upon which they really know nothing? Um, and yet it's it's important topics that we let Charles Lindbergh talk about. And millions listened because he was Charles Lindbergh. So, so talk in general about heroes, because I think we're living through a time when uh, individuals from the past, even in the present, uh, were once held as heroes, but no longer are as, as the truth of what happened uh, is unearthed and discovered or retold. Some people already knew it. I'm thinking of uh, Confederate statues being toppled, something that you and I have talked about before mm -hmm. the show. What is a hero and how, who and how is a hero defined? Yeah, how is it defined? I mean, I think that's a good question. Um, I think that changes from generation to generation who are American heroes. I think right now we're going through this reconsideration. Um, and I've been doing that a real long time with my books. This is what almost all of, I say all of my nonfiction books do is let me present to you, my young readers, my teenage readers, let me present to you the real story about this, this particular person, this person that we've held in high esteem. Um, I'm going to produce, I'm going to show you this information and I'm going to let you decide what is a hero. Is Charles Lindbergh still worthy of statues? Is he still worthy of Lindbergh Boulevard in um, St. Louis? Is he still worthy of having um, 
airports named after him. Um, I think that's something we decide as a society, but I think it's something that we need to reconsider, I think, periodically. And so I think it's a really good time to reconsider, particularly those heroes that have sort of gotten that, um, those extra pedestals, those guys that have been in the pantheon, I've said that, but the pantheon of, of, um, of heroes, these guys that have gotten like their big share of heroic, you know, the great American story. Um, I think the American story changes. I mean, history certainly doesn't change, but I think how we look at our history does. I mean, this all, it all feeds into sort of a conversation that, that has been broached uh, recently by President Trump about cancel culture. Uh, right. But it also, uh, the, the first time I heard a, a president discuss that was actually Barack Obama last October of 2019, where he basically said, you know, uh, people with faults might do good things. Absolutely. And, and I just want to sort of, from your study of history, um, where should we, in terms of, our, as we're educating young readers and young students about these complex individuals, uh, where should we begin and where should those conversations end? I think when we talk about like cancel culture, um, I had this conversation not too long ago with some kids I was teaching on Skype um, and they were writing historical fiction, but he wanted to entirely cancel Winston Churchill. Right. Um, I, we had this very same conversation. Well, wait a minute. We can say that he was a racist. We can say he did these things. Right. But we can also say that he did some amazing things. So just because you have some if you're flawed and you've made mistakes in life, that's what life is about. Right. Um, do we cancel that entire person? Do we say they're not worthy of a statue? They're not worthy of um, an award named after them? They're not worthy of a road named after them? Um, again, well, from a historical perspective, are they worthy of study? And I, you know, I, I have my own bias. I think they are. If they've yes. done, if they've yeah. done certain, I think if they've done certain things, absolutely, yeah, yeah, I think they absolutely are. I mean, Charles Lindbergh certainly is worth historical study. I mean, you, you can't skip him the world of technology um but that doesn't mean that we can't examine the rest of him warts and all um and what i love about what i love about particularly about biography for young adults is um they're still so open-minded and they're still so of the 21st century so they come to some different and interesting um, um conclusions after reading my work and that's what I want them to do. So I'm not going to tell them how to feel about Charles Lindbergh. I hope they'll figure out that he's not particularly worth emulating after his flight across the Atlantic. But that's their decision. Um, it's it's part of the conversation. And that's what I'm lending to the conversation, which I think is what we're having now. Vast so, conversation, right? As, as you look around the country and even the world during this pandemic, do you see heroes? And who might they be? And, and it, it could be, I mean, let me have you answer I the question. Heroes. Well, you know, I'm going to say this, and you guys will know that I was listening to the news this morning, but I think Dr. Fauci is a real hero. I, I really do. I think he's a... I think he's a hero right now, out there telling us what we need to know rather than what we wish we wanted to, to hear, right? So I think he's a, I think he's a real hero um, right now. Um, I think the Black Lives Movement, Black Lives Matter movement, is heroic right now. Um, we have we have some heroes. 
And, and we don't necessarily have to define hero as someone who is on the front page or leading the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal or, right. you know, right? I, there are, I don't like the term unsung heroes, but like, I can't think of a better one right now off the top of, of my head. There are those people too, just everyday people who- Everyday are, people mm -hmm. going to work, you know, bringing my groceries and, and going to hospitals and yeah, going to work. Um, those are the, yeah, unsung, well, cliche. But I agree with you. There are those, those are those heroic people, you know, in our world. So, yeah, yeah. you know, I, 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 uh, I, I, my, my parents encouraged me both to read a lot of, uh, biographies and historical biographies as I was growing up and I read a lot and I don't remember the kind of truth that you put into yours in any of them, to be quite frank. Uh, and I'm wondering why, uh, for so long, so much of what we thought of as biography was really myth-making and, yeah. and then why did it change myth-making you're absolutely right and a lot of it wasn't even real biography didn't you find that if you had learned up you'd think learn about oh and i'm going to say claire barton because i had a series of biographies and the only women there were nurses claire barton or florence Knight. first of all real problem um but i would read about these amazing mostly men uh white men and um when i got done I thought I knew something and I thought they were spectacular. And then I would find out these things and I thought, well, nobody told me. Then I would find out things that they told me in those books that were not true. And for a long time, at, at least in children's books, we did this thing that we like to think of as, um, I have actually heard it called this, directionally correct. So we should tell, even though we knew it wasn't true about these men, George Washington, I'm thinking of particularly, yes. even though we knew it wasn't true, it was directionally correct. So it was a good story for children. It was moral. And that's what we were doing with history. It's as if we don't trust young readers. Um, it's like kids aren't, you know, they're not stupid. They're just short or young. Um, and it's as if we don't trust them with, we can't trust them with the truth. And as if we can't trust them to make decisions um, but they come with their own moral decisions about who those people actually were um, and what their stories tell us about how we live today. Um, I think that's probably the most important thing about honest biography, real biography for kids, warts and all, is that if we don't tell those true stories from our past, we'll never figure out how to live in our present. And I think that's part of the big switch that we've seen, particularly in children's literature. And, and that's been at least the last 10 or 15 years for sure, that um, everything we put into our nonfiction is absolutely 100% nonfiction and it's sourced and attributed, which I love. I don't think, I'm not sure many of my readers look at my source notes despite my hundreds of hours I put into them. <laughs> but if they do, if just, just one kid that wants to go a little farther, there it is. Or if he doesn't believe me, he can look it up, you know. Now, you've written biographies of a number of women, mm -hmm. and uh, we don't have time to talk about all of them. Amelia Earhart, uh, which I haven't read, but I plan to. It sounds fascinating. She was more than the person who disappeared in in the Pacific, uh, an aviator like Charles Lindbergh. But talk a little bit about your book about Eleanor Roosevelt, who was oh. much, much more than the wife of a president, which is how perhaps people over the decades have viewed her. They might know a few of the things that she's done. Talk about her. She was a pretty 
every woman. Extraordinary, extraordinary. I need Eleanor Roosevelt today. We all need Eleanor Roosevelt today. And yeah, the reason I wrote that book was I kept, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt is one of my personal heroes. Um, she is a hero. And um, and I would tell kids, you know, they'd say, Who's your favorite? American history. And I would always say Eleanor Roosevelt. And they'd go, oh, the president's wife, which drove me nuts. Because <laughs> she was truly, I know, she was truly this force in and of herself. I mean, she becomes first lady of the world, right? Um, and everybody, when I was writing this story, this book, everybody had a story about her. It was fascinating. I would tell people I was writing a book about Eleanor I was deep in this research about Eleanor Roosevelt. And even though she did these great, made these great accomplishments with the UN and, and, you know, Franklin's eyes and ears and um, his conscience in many ways, um, I would get these wonderful stories that people would say, um, one gentleman said to me, I rode on the elevator one time with her in New York, and he said I was taking trash down in the elevator, and she oh, she's standing at the service elevator, and she didn't mind a bit that she rode down to the bottom floor with me in the trash elevator, and I talked to her about current events, and she paused and, and actually stood there in this trash-strewn elevator to talk to him about current events, just this man. Right. Um, and this story I heard again and again and again, all kinds of different Eleanor Roosevelt stories. Um, simple. She had time to stop. She had time to talk. They called her Eleanor, um, which is why I called the book Our Eleanor, because I realized that she really was everybody's. I mean, she would take the time. And, and I loved that she was just so personal, so of herself, you know. You also wrote Ben Franklin's Almanac, uh, and I, I should note here that your your books are beautifully illustrated, uh, and, and they 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 capture they capture my adult eye for that reason, in, in addition to many other reasons. But reading Ben Franklin's Almanac, uh, you again discovered some truths that are not part of the mythology of Ben Franklin as founder, and one of them was he was not, shall we say, as were. The rest of the founders is exactly a supporter of women's rights. Talk no, about that. Women's education. Interestingly, African-Americans education, but it wouldn't have been an African-American girl for sure. Yeah, definitely women were, were to stay where women belonged. Oh, he, you know what? He liked a woman who could add, subtract, and read because she could help you in her your business, and that was a real good asset. But that was her that was her purpose, sort of to to be there for the men, to take run the business while they were doing more important things like you know raising up a new country um, or going off to England. Um, but he was not a supporter of women. He was also a slave owner. You know, which is something we don't talk about ever. There's one of those gray areas of Benjamin Franklin that we don't talk about that does turn up in my book. Um, and he's, here's the thing. A lot of people would want to maybe call, cancel him right now and pull down a statue. But in this case, there's part of that discussion, going back to what we were talking about earlier. Benjamin Franklin um, had two slaves. He bought them because he finally had enough money to buy slaves and he thought it was a status thing. Um, but as he got older and he got wiser and he got um, saw more of the world and learned more, um, he suddenly didn't 
believe in slavery at all. And in fact, towards the end of his life, he sends a letter to the first Congress under his own cover from the Quakers, um, asking them to take up the matter of slavery um, with the hopes, with an eye to eliminating slavery in the country. And he did that knowing that if he sent a letter with his name, Benjamin Franklin on it, that they would have to take it up in Congress. That's remarkable. Candy, it, the, the body of work is tremendous. The new book is The Rise and Fall of Charles Lindbergh. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It was a that, pleasure. That's all the time we have this week. But if you want to know more about storing the public square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or PellCenter.org. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square. going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.